The Retrograde Approach, Episode 20, The Diabetic Foot. Welcome to The Retrograde Approach. My name is Dr. Yogi Sanskaran. It's my pleasure to introduce your friend and mine, the tibial hunter himself, after such a long hiatus away from the recording studio. It's none other than Dr. Sam Farah. Welcome. Yogi, you survived the floods. Mate, I survived the rain, the floods. Despite a period, living- with, a period with no power. It's like camping indoors. Despite living in a high-rise apartment, you still managed to get flooded out. So well done, mate. It's uh, an achievement in itself. For those of you who don't live in Queensland, it's you've got to come. You've got to come and see Queensland. It's uh, part of the mystique of our tropical weather system. Um, yeah, it's been a fascinating couple of weeks as I've tried to uh, learn to acclimatise to living in the dark for a while. Um, but Sam, um, it's a... This is a funny time of the year. Um, as uh, you and I both know, we've got um, uh, final year trainees in vascular surgery about to sit their fellowship exam. So just a quick shout out to all of them to say good luck. We're thinking of you all. Uh, we're just a week uh, away from the written, a week down the track from the Australian Vascular Trials, which is also a fantastic experience for you and me. Yeah, it was great to uh, get to Adelaide and uh, see everyone about to sit the exam and put them through their paces. I think uh, you and I both highly enjoyed it and also enjoyed being on the other side of <laughs> the exam, not being a candidate. But uh, I think that time is now rapidly uh, getting away from us. Yeah, some some people thought we had too much fun um, being examiners, but, um, you know, it's it's definitely a part of the journey that you go through as, as you're sort of in your final year of training um, and any form of exam preparation uh, was always helpful and from my eyes. And uh, I think that was the strength of our study group, Sam. Yeah, exactly. And this was uh, today's episode. This is one of your, this was one of your favorite topics, the diabetic foot. This is a, this is a topic that is endless. Uh, it can, we can go on for hours but also, Sam, it's pretty fair to say it makes up a bulk of a, a lot of our practice. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's something we see on a day-to-day basis and at any given time, a fair uh, portion of our inpatients are uh, patients with diabetic foot-related issues. So, yeah, I think that's fair. And for junior registrars or residents that listen to the podcast, when it comes to thinking about common vascular problems that you encounter, um, whilst ulcers are a very common presentation and uh, form a part of the conglomerate that's the diabetic foot, um, diabetic feet as an overall uh, overarching area is definitely a common problem. And in certain parts of Australia, it really is reflective of the endemic nature that diabetes has uh, taken over in terms of the health of patients. And that's perhaps reflected in sort of the socioeconomic disadvantage in certain parts of the country. But Generally, as a nation, we do have um, only a growing prevalence of diabetes across across the country, and um, there will uh, almost definitely be an endless supply of people who will struggle with diabetic foot-related issues um, 
during their time. Um, so this is a timely topic. And for those that are sitting um, their exams, um, hopefully we can present it in a way that makes it easy for you in terms of your discussion in both the short and long cases um, as the examiners may grill you down on some of the finer details that we can touch on tonight. Yeah, and I think uh, the last thing to say, there are really multiple stakeholders involved in the management of diabetic foot problems. So obviously us as vascular surgeons have a role, but we have podiatrists, nurses, uh, endocrinologists, infectious diseases, specialists, orthopedic surgeons, plastic surgeons. I mean, the list really goes on, reflecting the multidisciplinary nature of the care of patients with diabetic foot uh, disorders. Yeah, and, and I guess for those of you who may be pondering the question, I'll put it to you, Sam. Why do you think the diabetic foot um, sits within the vascular realm in a large number of centres around the country and overseas? Because everyone else cocks it up, Yogi. <laughs> what Sam means is that because it's a multi-system issue um, with a primary underlying issue that's driven by arterial insufficiency, often vascular surgeons take the lead role when it comes to dealing with it. But a lot of our colleagues in other specialties, in particular, I think of orthopedic surgeons, are definitely better foot and ankle surgeons than you and I, hey? Yeah, I agree with that. And in and overseas, podiatric surgeons probably are the four leading uh, specialists in the area. It's just in the Australian healthcare system, we've sort of... It, become more adapt to the ability of dealing with foot and ankle issues of the diabetic foot. Yeah. Uh, I think the other point is that often the diabetic foot with vascular compromise is the patient most at risk. And when um, diabetic foot patients uh, sometimes end up under the care of other specialists um, and those vascular issues go unrecognized, the, the problem is often much more difficult to salvage or rectify it and that's probably why in my opinion at least we've become the primary um, specialty involved at least in hospitals in terms of being the principal bed card or um, physicians involved yeah and unfortunately it's probably of no surprise that diabetic foot presentations leads to uh, significant morbidity, but specifically uh, the risk of limb loss, which is a um, catastrophic outcome for anyone. Um, and in a patient with an underlying diabetic-related issue, it um, significantly impairs their quality of life and greatly reduces their life expectancy. And so this is a major issue in society, uh, a, a, a disease process that really benefits from a multidisciplinary approach. Um, and the combination of all specialties involved really presents the best opportunity for um, patients with diabetic feet uh, to maintain the integrity of their foot for as long as they can. Maybe, Yogi, we'll just get uh, stuck straight into it. I know you've uh, sent me, uh, as you normally do, a fairly comprehensive set of notes. So why do um, what's the general underlying etiology of diabetic foot disorders? Yeah, I mean, if I could take just one step back before coming to the, to your question, I think it's very important to sort of define the diabetic foot and what it encompasses. And so we're, we're looking at infection, ulceration, and the destruction of tissue of 
the foot associated with underlying neuropathy and peripheral arterial disease of the lower extremity in a person with a history of diabetes. So when it comes down to the etiology, I've sort of summarized it hopefully in that description. It really is the triad of neuropathy, arterial insufficiency, and infection, which can often be triggered by minor trauma and that's not an uncommon circumstance that you and I have seen in practice. When it comes to the diabetic neuropathy, and this is an area of great um, discussion in any short case, uh, Sam, um, what are the three broad neuropathies that a diabetic foot may um, potentially encounter? Yeah, so obviously initially there's a um, fair amount of, well, there can be uh, an element of motor neuropathy, um, sensory neuropathy this is obviously reflecting the fact that patients get uh, pressure points and pressure areas on their feet that leads to ulceration and a lot of these uh, can be associated with autonomic dysfunction causing dysregulation um, within the foot itself causing drying of the skin cracking fissures which can often precipitate a number of these uh, foot problems so if I was an examiner in a short case, Sam, and I said to you, mate, um, so could you tell me about some of the motor neuropathy changes you might see uh, in a diabetic foot? What would you, what sort of things might you point out? Um, so when examining the foot, I'll be looking at the toes in particular, looking at clawing, um, any wasting or guttering of the toes, which could be uh, indicative of atrophy of the lumbricals and the interosseous muscles looking at the foot arch um, particularly as there's an increase in uh, tendon forces it can be a more pronounced uh, pes cavus deformity and this can therefore this can also then exacerbate the clawing of the toes and also cause an equinus type deformity which is obviously like a horse like shape to the foot um, hammer toes contractures of the dis- digits um I'm sure there are more yogi, but those would be the main main ones I would po- point out in the short case. Yeah, and and the clawing deformity is definitely one that we see quite a lot. As you know, you get those uh, pressure injuries that occur at the distal tip of the toe from contact. And a favourite question from last week's ABT to the candidates were, um, sort of, what were the muscle groups involved that result in this. And as you mentioned, Sam, the atrophy of the lumbricals and the interossea uh, muscles play a part, but you get this overwhelming increase in extensor tendon forces. And what, and those extensor tendons that we're interested in are the extensor hallucis longus, extensor hallucis brevis, the extensor digitorum longus and tibialis anterior. They all play a role in the clawing deformity that you then end up of the toes itself. Um, And that plays a part. When it comes to the sensory neuropathy uh, with a diabetic foot, we all know they have a glove and stocking distribution. Um, and though there are two major sensory fibers that get affected grossly um, when it comes down to it. Um, typically, the type A myelin fibers, which are affected, uh, cause a loss of the proprioception and pressure sensation, vibratory uh, perception, and as well as the impaired gait but also the destruction of type C sensory fibers leads to an inability to appreciate the painful stimuli. And so the issue that occurs with that is that grossly um, a diabetic foot um, can experience repetitive foot trauma 
uh, without uh, awareness that there's dysfunction. When it comes to autonomic neuropathy, um, this, of course, is what's what makes a diabetic foot prone to further issues um, with impaired microvascular thermoregulation and anhydrosis. You get skin that's dry and prone to fissuring, uh, which diminishes its effectiveness as a barrier to microorganisms. And that leads to susceptibility um, to dermal infections, which becomes what we then clinically see as cellulitis. So the second component of a diabetic foot is the arterial insufficiency, Sam. And um, we know when you look at the distribution of arterial disease, it really does defer depending on the underlying pathology. Uh, classically, smokers had more proximal issues in the aortic segment. But what, what's your experience with diabetic feet and their distribution of tibial atherosclerotic disease in that group? Oh, sorry, atherosclerotic disease in that group. I think you inadvertently gave it away there. Yogi. Well, because, because you're the tibial hunter, Sam. But basically, yeah, as you, as, as you said, <laughs> we're really looking at tibial vessel disease. So all the trouble was below the knee. Um, it's funny. I mean, like, there are several kind of patterns I've noticed. Um, often people can have whole tibial vessel problems. They can have heavy trifurcation disease, which is often uh, surgically quite difficult to manage. Um, and then... They can also have pedal disease. Um, When the pedal arch is involved, revascularization options can be a bit more limited. Um, But I guess in summary, we're looking at a lot of trouble below the knee, which is often quite challenging to address. I mean, I do call Sam the tibial hunter, but he could easily be called the distal bypass hunter too because he loves a good dorsalis pedis bypass. Um, But... The the frustrating thing, I think, with uh, the tibial presentation of diabetic feet, like you said, is the mixed presentation that you end up with. And often, frustratingly, the vessel that's preserved in terms of runoff to the foot is the perineal artery. And um, that poses significant issues in making sure there's adequate perfusion to the foot. Um, and that can pose a significant challenge in achieving um, healing following uh, trauma or an ulcer that does ar- that arises. Uh, we'll talk about this later, Sam, but I guess um, the concept of angiosomes really became quite an um, area of interest in the last few years, especially um, when, it came, when it comes to the uh, sort of management of a diabetic foot. So there are strong believers either way. Uh, Sam, you remember it was a question in our fellowship exam, uh, which we wrote extensively yeah. on long forgotten but sure um but um we'll talk about that in sort of management of um diabetic foot presentations but it is really an area that comes out of plastic surgery uh, and has had some degree of impact in terms of how we think about revascularization um, finally the p- last part of the triad is infection sam and um nothing worse than uh, a diabetic foot, uh, especially when they've got significant evidence of infection. Um, what have you seen in terms of presentations? What can it range from and to? And what do you, what are your thoughts in terms of the organisms that you potentially can encounter? Yeah, well, I guess you know there's a fairly um, significant uh, in spectrum of presentations involved. I mean, we're really talking about uh, everything from open wounds with really minimal infection and cellulitis or frank 
uh, wet gangrene with gas forming organisms and, and everything uh, in between. Um, why this happens? Well, you know, obviously hyperglycemia is an issue. Um, uh, uh, immunity dysregulation due to chronic diabetes is also an, an issue. Um, but often as these infections are polymicrobial, staph, strep, enterococci, E. coli, other grand negative bacteria are commonly involved. Um, there's an increasing number of uh, cases due to MRSA, MRSA. and obviously um, chronic wounds ha- can also have a component of chronic biofilm or um, chronic uh, colonization as well. So all these just mean the rate of limb loss can uh, accelerate. Yeah, I think you touched on a very important point there that um, very poor glycemic control, apart from its more systemic issues, also causes significant immunological dysfunction. And it just impairs the ability of the individual to fight infection because of their impaired leukocyte activity complement fun- uh, function. So um, this, the, I guess, forming the backbone of your uh, immunity and uh, re- I guess uh, inflammatory response uh, to infection. Um yeah, biofilms are a very interest, is an interesting area, broadly speaking, um, and it's one that we constantly encounter in the wounds we look after, Sam. Um, it's that sort of uh, multi-species colonies of relatively sustentant um, communities of bacteria which produce that glycocalyx shell, um, and it's that shell that sort of helps to protect the organisms from potentially being removed from the wound and it's a constant challenge that you and I face uh, when dealing with uh, a diabetic foot um, especially given that these organisms are incredibly uh, adaptive to their environments yeah and um, often they can be present um, uh, without frank cellulitis and these biofilms really generally respond very poorly to antibiotics now I guess the um, next thing to sort of look at broadly, I know we've touched on some of these things so far, but um, there are a multitude of both muscular and bony abnormalities that occur with the diabetic foot. So again, um, Sam, you're at the end of the bed. Uh, the examiner's just brought you into the room. Um, you see a patient with a diabetic foot. What are some of the obvious uh, bony and muscular abnormalities that you might encounter um, in that examination? I think we sort of touched on these briefly already, but just to kind of rehash some of them, digital contractures. So this is a contracture of the digits at the interphalangeal joints or the metatarsal phalangeal joints. This can cause ulcers, rubbing on the shoes, um, and, uh, et cetera. So you can get a hallux abductor vulgus deformity. Um, so abduction of the, the frontal plane of the hallux. This causes deviation of the first metatarsal joint. And again, um, Another additional area of uh, pressure uh, to develop. Um, probably one of the main ones we see, Yogi, uh, sort of collapse of the arch or the medial and lateral columns or the columns uh, separately. And these cause very problematic plantar wounds, um, which can be very difficult for um, acute presentations because they can often present with a lot of cellulitis and a lot of infection. And particularly because they often occur over the midfoot, um, which is uh, a bad place to get uh, osteomyelitis, as it doesn't leave a lot of surgical options and the rate of amputation 
um, when those wounds deteriorate through they're quite high. Um, we also mentioned already the equinus deformity, um, but again, this is where you get this sort of horse-like appearance to the foot, um, and this causes extreme pressure at the forefoot, often associated with subluxation of the uh, metatarsal phalangeal joints, and this is a, a prime area for ulceration later on, um, and particularly uh, the first uh, MTPJ, the first of the hallux, the big toe, particularly gets infected and um, this often leads to a high rate of uh, first toe infection, which is very difficult for the patient to deal with. Um, and probably the next big one would be Charcot's arthropathy. I don't know if we're going to talk about that uh, separately, but just as a coming con- up, but uh, as a condition, um, this is something we see quite often. But basically, the, we have significant abnormality within the forefoot and significant collapse. Yeah, and you know as as Sam described the various features there, you've got to picture Sam at the end of the bed like um, uh, the crocodile hunter sort of uh, skulking the foot, pointing the various features out to the examiner. But also, I, get, I guess a good exam technique is also to then describe the features that aren't there as well uh, to really, really bring home the fact that you've prepared for the, the diabetic foot station. Um, so moving on, the, as Sam mentioned, um, Charcot foot is a um, part of the broad um, bony abnormalities that we see in the diabetic foot spectrum of presentation, Sam. Um, it's quite a um, debilitating condition for those people who suffer from it. It, it requires a lot of support from our allied health and orthopedic colleagues in terms of ensuring um, that the uh, acute phase is managed and hopefully the long-term sequelae of its issues are looked after, but typically involves extensive destruction of the midfoot with collapse of the arch and loss of foot stability. It's quite impressive um, when it does happen. Acutely, it can present with significant edema, erythema and calor with fractures and or dislocations across the joint, um, uh, joint uh, across the joints and the foot or ankle. Um, and so often when they do present, it can mimic um, infection. And then classically with ongoing subluxation and dislocation of the tarsal bones, you get this rocker bottom foot, um, which as you can imagine, together with peripheral neuropathy, put, puts them at a high risk of ulceration. Um, a good question to ask you here, Sam, is um, there are two really known primary theories for Charcot's foot. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the two theories um, that are um, sort of in play here? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first one is this sort of uh, repetitive traumatic or neuro- neurotrauma theory. Um, so the patient has a degree of neuropathy and this causes um, a repetitive or allows the state of repetitive microtrauma to affect the midfoot. Um which causes um, gradually subluxation and uh, eventual collapse of the midfoot, uh, eventuating with the Charcot's deformity. And then there's a neurovascular theory where neuropathic patients have a dysregulated autonomic nervous system and desensitized joints, and then we receive greater number of blood flow. Sorry, a greater amount of blood flow 
and this causes a, a dysfunction in the osteoblastic to osteoclastic uh, balance. So there's increased uh, uh, osteoclasts as opposed to osteoblasts, which then causes um, basically the midfoot to be weakened and become more prone to mechanical stress and destruction. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, the I know this is your favorite classification system, but what is the classification system for a Charco foot? Yeah, I know <laughs> the uh, Eichenholz. Achenholz, stage zero, uh, uh, or clinical stage zero, warm, swollen, hot, pain, painful foot. This is the patient you basically want to, uh, if you encounter a patient in this sort of state, you need to uh, admit them to hospital, uh, get their foot up, get them off the foot, and you basically, um, we're going to talk about management later, Yogi, of this. We but are. We basically, are. Basically, you need to keep this patient off their foot and put them into a cast to pre- preserve um, as much foot architecture as possible. It's a total contact cast. Correct, yep. Yep. Stage one, uh, fragmentational destruction with bony cysts and erosion. Stage two, joint subluxation. Stage, th- stage three, arch collapse and coalescence. And finally, stage four, consolidation. Yeah, and I think so from an exam perspective, being able to think about that when you're looking at a plain film x-ray might be helpful as you think about whereabouts the patient may lie in the grand scheme of things. So in summary, Sam, if we were to do a short case on a diabetic foot from top to bottom, you're examining the patient. Um, Could you just walk us through your strategy as you sort of walk into the room um, and the examiner says, please examine this foot. So, um, geez, you're putting me on the spot here, but let me, let me, let me help you. The first thing I would look at is the surrounds. I'd look at the patient disposition. I'd look at mobility aids. I would look at their footwear. I'd look to see if there was a total contact um, cast, total contact cast, whether it was a moon boot. I'd look at essentially the, the equipment around the room that may suggest the the situation next. Actually, they may have a, uh, they wouldn't have a, Total contact cast. They may have a bivalve to- total contact cast. They, that's why. That's why we pay you the big bucks. Thanks, mate. <laughs> but then, um, so you, you, yeah. So, so you, you you've seen the bivalve cast, and then you turn to the patient. Do you? What's your short case sort of approach? Do you pose the question? Excuse me, sir. Are you diabetic? Well, you've done your general inspection. You looked around the room. You looked for all the aids, and you look at the foot. Yep. And there's usually an abnormality. And then I would say the most obvious feature here is that there's a uh, plantar first MTPJ ulcer. And then before I would touch the patient, I would say, uh, "Is this uh, painful, sir? If I were to examine you," and the patient would say, "No, that's fine. Go for it." Obviously, a lot of them are neuropathic and don't have any pain. Yep. And then I would start. Uh, uh, by describing what I see, I say that you know there's a, the most obvious feature here is the first MTPJ ulcer. The edges are uh, hypercalloused, indicate this is most likely a neuropathic uh, wound. I'm suspicious that the patient's diabetes. Do you have diabetic surgery? Have diabetes? Then they usually say yes or no. Um, I might point out some other features. The ulcer looks clean, non-infected, granulating well. I can't see any underlying bone, uh, yep. but I want to examine this uh, foot a bit further. Then I would start by doing a sort of uh, a hands-on examination by that stage. Um, for us, we 
begin by checking pulses. Um, okay. What are you feeling for? Uh, start with the dorsalis pedis pulse and then the posterior tibial pulse. Typically, you don't check for a perineal pulse, although uh, a common uh, AVT question. Uh, and then I would yes. uh, basically move up the leg until I get stopped. Say, okay, popliteal femoral, fine. Yes. And then I would uh, come back and then uh, uh, discuss doing um, neuropathic testing at that stage. Yeah, and I guess in the process of all of that, Sam would have talked through some of the structural foot deformities that we discussed um, and then skin changes, so getting them either to raise their foot or raising the foot themselves and looking for skin changes, callus formation, cracks, fissures, um, the turga. Um, raising the foot also allows you to do a um, transient burgers test there. At the same time, you can look for whether there's potentially... Um, arterial insufficiency, but that can also be defined by looking at the color of the foot, whether the, the, the skin's shiny and thin, whether there's been loss of hair. You can look at some nail changes uh, in the process for infection, dystrophy, hypertrophy, paronychia, fungal changes. And then Sam's favorite part of the diabetic foot is whipping out um, the monofilament um, as he gets ready to do his assessment uh, of the foot. Yeah, yeah, I feel like you're, you're, you're on a roll here. You may as well keep going. <laughs> and um, other, other aspects of it would also include um, testing for vibration and proprioception in the process. Um, uh, uh, the diabetic foot showcase is really a gift horse if you see it because it really allows you to demonstrate your knowledge base and you can bring together... Um, the relevant positives and negatives, which the examiners will either push you along or allow you to sing through some of these um, potential issues as you piece it all together. Um, so we get to the end of the short case exam. The examiner says to you, Sam, okay, so what do you want to do next? So um, I guess there's a fair uh, uh, range of answers. Um, usually... Yep. You know, just to have a systematic approach would generally be the best thing. So, start with the vascularity. That's usually the most uh, pertinent thing to us. If there's no pulses, if there's a suggestion that the perfusion is non optimized, then you're talking about performing an arterial duplex scan with a view to perform an angiogram if, mm-hmm. if appropriate. Then, uh, in terms of the wound and the foot, you're looking at offloading. You're looking at um, uh, if there's any infection that require antibiotics. Um, are there any deformities that need to be uh, addressed in the foot? So you've um, you've also done a wound swab because you think it looks a bit funky. You've asked for a bone probe and you probed it to see whether you've got down to bone. Uh, and then you might think about looking at some imaging to investigate the area. So uh, plain field x-ray, especially... Um, with long-standing wounds, you might see some bony changes. Often takes up to two weeks to see changes on the X-ray, but uh, more sensitive um, tests would be an MR, um, and some institutions use a white cell scan or a nuclear uh, bone scan. Um, before the arterial duplex, um, Sam, um, some institutions would say an ABI, but the biggest issue with an ABI and a diabetic foot is that you may get a false neg, a false positive, a sort of falsely high reading, rather. Sorry. 
because of the calcified distal vessels. And so you may be better off using toe pressure. And in some institutions, transcutaneous oxygen is used as an alternative means of assessing perfusion. Though uh, I would say that this is not routinely done in practice across Australia. Though it's um, definitely a technique that um, physicians in a hyperbaric unit would definitely utilize to assist with wound healing. Um, so the other potential aspects also would be to look at blood tests. So uh, you'd ask for a full blood count to look at the patient's white cell count. And also if there's any evidence of underlying anemia, um, you would ask for a chem 20 to look at their underlying renal function, any electrolyte disturbance. What's a chem 20, um, Yogi? Oh, sorry. The chem 20 is a, is a electrolyte urea creatinine plus, um, I think it includes albumin and also LFTs, unfortunately. So um, I guess electrolytes urea creatinine is probably the more correct way of posing that. Um, you may con um, rather controversially, don't do this in ED, but ask for a C-reactive protein uh, once they get to the ward um, just to see what their baseline is and maybe look to use that as a trend over a couple of, uh, over a couple of days. Um, you might get some coagulation studies, especially if you're preparing the patient for further intervention in a group and hold. But importantly, Sam, you might ask for a um, glycosylated hemoglobin or HbA1c as you start to prime yourself in terms of counseling the patient uh, for what they might require. Now, when it comes to all of this information, Sam, um, we've been very fortunate that the um, Society of Vascular Surgery um, has put together the Wi-Fi classification, which is a useful way of thinking about a diabetic foot. It brings together concepts of the wound, ischemia, foot infection, to draw together um, a, a way of determining intervention for a patient and their risk of amputation. Um, do you utilize the Wi-Fi scoring system in your practice? Uh, I don't utilize the whole, whole scoring system uh, routinely. I think, um, look, I think the Wi-Fi is a couple of things. One, um, it sort of highlights to um, us as surgeons high-risk features such as diminished toe pe- pressures, um, yep. significant infection. Um, I think... Generally, looking at a foot, we have um, an understanding or an appreciation of what the actual amputation risk is, um, assessing the patient. But um, I think there's also an element that you know, Wi-Fi is potentially a research tool as well for kind of standardization of patients for um, future studies. So, although yes, it is important. Well, yes, it is important and it is, it is useful. I think probably not many of us utilize it all that often. Um, although I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, Yogi, whether you yourself use it. Oh, look, I, I think it's a useful strategy um, as you're, uh, especially when you're a training registrar and um, you're trying to piece together um, severity of presentation and urgency of discussion of a uh, situation with your supervising consultant. Um, so I think it plays a pretty important role. Um especially as you're initially assessing the patient. But I, I, I agree with you. One of the things it does do is it tries to standardize the process of escalation of a situation, which I think sometimes a diabetic foot can be um, uh, can be a dark horse. It suddenly creeps up on you and before you know it, the patient's very unwell. So um, especially for our junior registrars out there, when you're in emergency and you're uncertain as to how unwell someone is, 
Uh, I think putting the information quickly into the table and thinking about what you're actually seeing just gives you an idea of what you may need to do for the patient, especially if they're not looking terrible from the end of the bed, but their foot's telling you otherwise. Um, nothing worse than seeing pus coming from the foot the next morning when um, it's potentially been missed and the patient's been unwell overnight. So, look, I, I think it plays a role. I think from the exam point of view, um, I would be very comfortable in being able to talk about that um, as a means of strategizing and stratifying patients for their potential intervention. Um, and the Wi-Fi classification also then plays a, a role in estimating, I guess, as Sam mentioned, some of the research aspects of this, but estimating risk of amputation at a year. Um, and I guess the benefit or requirement for revascularization. And so all of that put together, um, for our junior registrars and training registrars, I think it's a useful exercise in dealing with that. Yeah, I think that's, um, sorry to interrupt. I think that is an important thing. You know, it really, you know, we're looking at protecting the patient's one year amputation risk, not the in the hospital or yeah. 30 day amputation risk. Yeah, and I mean, as we all know, this is a condition that becomes overwhelming in, in the life of a, a patient with a diabetic foot. And so, there are ongoing challenges, not in the here and now, but into the longer term. And uh, these patients need a lot of um, support from allied health staff, but also the multidisciplinary team to achieve um, or the ability to maintain their foot. I think there, what it, another you know thing to, to think about, just the name in itself. So we've got wound, ischemia, foot infection. So yep. for a person who is kind of new to diabetic foot problems, maybe a good way to think about each individual patient as a whole. What's the wound doing? Yep. How extensive is the ulceration? Number two, is it leaky ischemic? What's the underlying status of their perfusion? And then number three, how severe is the uh, foot infection itself? Are there systemic features of infection? Is the patient unwell, etc. Yeah, uh, I think you and I have both been that registrar in emergency when we've looked at a foot and thought, what are we going to do here? Um, and it's, I think it, this system is allows you to be um, prudent in your assessment of the patient. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. So, Sam, I guess we're on to that sort of critical aspect of the management of a diabetic foot. Um, and so what are some of the non-operative um, components of diabetic foot management? Uh, basically dressings, looking at controlling inf infection, inflammation, uh, optimizing moisture balance. This is where uh, sort of um, specialized wound service can be relatively helpful to uh, manage um, a lot of these issues. I used to, um, there is a uh, an acronym, is a BEAMS for the methods of wound deprivement, um, enzymat uh, biological, enzymatic, I can't remember, but Sometimes a lot of these wounds do respond to multiple small debridements to um, keep them in that acute wound healing phase rather than the uh, chronic wound healing phase. We're then looking at offloading. So this is where an, uh, an orthotist, orthotist is uh, extremely helpful in terms of uh, getting things right, which can be particularly challenging if the patient's had um, 
you know, multiple digit or digital amputations prior. Um, getting the appropriate footwear can be quite difficult, and then you know, add in um, the effects of um, biomechanical and structural changes to the foot that may have occurred with time as well. Um, and then obviously optimizing the patient's diabetic control is essential to all of this. So as you see, multiple teams involved. Uh, we're managing uh, dressings, wound debridements, offloading, diabetes, and uh, infectious diseases, antibiotics. Um, so the non-operative management is actually quite extensive uh, in its own right. Yeah, and so uh, just to go back to the um, uh, mnemonic that you mentioned, mm. Sam, beams, biological debridement, enzymatic debridement, autolytic debridement, mechanical debridement, surgical shaft and conservative shaft debridement. That's the one. That's it. And the other thing I'd say is with dressings, um, you know, uh, you and I have both learned a lot from uh, the nursing colleagues that we have interacted in our careers and, um there's some fantastic wound care nurses around the country who um, uh, play a vital role in delivering um, wound care on a day-to-day basis, either on the wards or through their outpatient services or through their outreach services. And um, uh, as a junior registrar, you learn a lot by spending time with wound care nurses. Uh, Otherwise you learn the very standard, if it's wet, make it dry. And if it's dry, make it wet. Um, but there's, there's much more finesse these days with the wound dressing choices that are available and spending a bit of time talking to wound care nurses just allows you to get a better feel for why you want to do a particular dressing and what it actually entails. Um, next comes the, the discussion of operative management, Sam. And so where do you think we stand with the discussion of revascularization and the diabetic foot? Loaded question, Yogi. Well, let, let me put it to you this way, right? We're in the year of the hybrid operative environment. Um, there are both open and endovascular options for revascularization of the, of the foot. We're also um, the only real paper of discussion in this area has been the BASIL trial with the upcoming uh, best CLI and BASIL 2 and 3 studies pending. What do we sort of take out of Basel to knowing that the majority of patients weren't diabetic in that group, but what do we take out of that paper? Um, generally, if the patient uh, is going to live less than two years, um, actually, let me rephrase it. If the patient is going to live more than two years, uh, perhaps open surgical reconstruction is uh, preferred. Um, however, if there's uh, a thought that the patient's got a shorter life expectancy, then one can consider uh, an endovascular first um, approach. Um, And that um, an endovascular first approach often can uh, make an open repair that much more difficult uh, was sort of the major conclusions that came out of the Basel trial. But would it be fair to say that endovascular armamentarium since that time has markedly changed, Sam? Yeah, absolutely, and also the medical management of these patients has also changed. So, and there was no tibial hunter back then. No, there was definitely no tibial hunter. Uh, but basically, you know, plain balloon angioplasty was the only real endovascular um, uh, option used during that study. So, 
most and probably myself included would not say it's necessarily applicable to what we're doing today. Yeah, and the armamentarium these days ranges from balloon angioplasty, drug eluting, balloon angioplasty, drug eluting, stent, the uncovered and covered um, stents that are also available, uh, atherectomy, lithothripsy, uh, which I recently saw was a resurgence, um, all play a role in um, the care of um the diabetic tibial disease um, presentation, but also I think the techniques of revascularization have markedly changed. And if we could just take a quick minute, Sam, here to talk about angiosomes and whether um, we think it plays a big role in revascularization of the diabetic foot. What is it, by the way? Well, angiosome is basically, um, when people talk about an angiosome, it's basically the perfusion to a region of the body like a dermatome, I guess, would be the uh, uh, comparison to make there. But used in practice, what we're talking about is the perfusion to a particular part of the foot. For example, if you would have a foot, uh, sorry, a, a foot with a heel wound, but you attained inline flow via the dorsalis pedis to the front of the foot, then you would not have revascularized that particular angiosome that's feeding. Uh, the problem area. Now you may have indirectly by uh, if there's an intact pedal arch that would then uh, allow blood to be taken to that area but generally uh, when we talk about revascularization to the angiosome we're talking about direct inline blood flow to the wound um, in question. Yeah and, and I think um, you know the, the the discussion between inline and non-inline flow um, has raised um, a lot of questions in terms of practice when it comes to uh, diabetic foot management. Um, and then the concept of uh, situational perfusional benefits, Sam, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we're basically saying um, we're going to try something that probably won't last forever, but we're just trying to get the patient um, out of trouble. Yeah. So classic example, you've got a patient who's elderly, frail, yeah. um, chronic limb-threatening ischemia with an ulcer, um, failed conservative management, you basically then embark on a procedure to revascularize the leg. That may not be the most durable option, but it just, uh, it just runs long enough that the patient's able to heal their ulcer and um, move on. Yeah, which is the biggest risk for them losing their leg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, the um, the other aspect of it is the um, uh, MDT input when it comes to management, um, Sam. And we've already talked about this at length at the start, but um, really these patients need uh, a multi-specialty uh, team. Um, you know, as vascular surgeons, there are, uh, we are only one part of the cog. Um, and there are often a lot of people that are involved in the care of diabetic feet on a weekly uh, basis to keep people going and also to ensure that their legs are um, not threatened. Um, and we're, you know, as a specialty um, cohort, we're incredibly grateful to all those individuals that are involved in the management of diabetic foot uh, presentations, but also all of those uh, people that are involved in um, 
foot clubs around the country uh, on a weekly basis um, looking after this very vulnerable group of patients. Yeah, and actually something we don't talk about uh, often at all, yogis, um, all these patients have chronic uh, social and financial issues that yep. um, really impact on their care. Um, for instance, um, you know, a lot of these people need case management, um, social support, um, psychological and psychiatric assistance. And a lot of this is really in the domains of social work, um, which can often be quite difficult for these patients to access on an outpatient basis in Australia. Yeah. Um, and all that just really means it just adds to their chronic, uh, 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 their chronic illness. And um, there's a lot that actually goes on with these patients outside the hospital and outside the acute setting. There's a significant amount of homelessness amongst this population, uh, which impacts on their ability to, you know, have appropriate dressings, appropriate offloading, um, and it goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, when you think about consumable costs for the care of a diabetic foot, um, it is large, and it's no surprise that the um, the both the societal cost and also the economic cost of diabetic feet is enormous. Um, you know, achieving limb salvage greatly greatly um, improves the quality of life of the patient, but also the economic cost of limb loss is just enormous when it comes to care, support, rehabilitation, um, and adjuncts that are required to sort of keep someone going. So um, it's a difficult area of care. Um, I think it's one of the areas that, despite the fact that um, it looks at and deals with blood vessels that are uh, minuscule compared to the other blood vessels that we look after, Sam. It's uh, a bread and butter area of vascular surgical practice and one that constantly challenges us all. So keeps us um, keeps us interested in terms of the overall psychosocial aspect of um, medicine that it is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sam, I think if I was examining you, you would have got a big old pass, maybe four. Um, Unlikely. You smashed, you smashed it. Um, like like no one's business. Thanks, Yogi. You you, you deserve a you deserve your fellowship. Thanks. <laughs> Glad you survived the floods, mate. <laughs> mate, I was just I was just trying to stay dry as as often as I could. So um, yeah. Look, we're it's it's nice to be back. And again, best wishes to the final year trainees that are in the the throes of the fellowship exam. We look forward to celebrating with you all. Music's playing, Yogi. It's time to wrap up. Time to go home, mate. Thanks, Sam. <laughs>